Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon. <clears throat> Thank you for coming. Thank you to Peter and Bodo for having me here. So, where should we start? Um, chanting is a good place to start. Vande Gurunam. Vande. Does anybody know what this chant means? is just too shy to speak about it in public. Vande is a beautiful word. Vande means, um, actually, Vande and Pranamami, which you find in this chant, are synonymous. So they both mean, you know, I bow down or I acknowledge. Um, we don't do this very much, I think. I don't know if you greet people like this in Denmark. Do you do this? Yeah, we don't do it in Canada either. Mostly when we meet someone, we shake their hand as hard as possible. <laughs> show who's the boss. Yeah. But in many other cultures, when you meet somebody, you make yourself small, smaller than them. Yeah. If you've ever been to Japan, this is how you greet people. You make yourself very small had the good fortune this year of meeting the Dalai Lama. And when you meet the Dalai Lama, you put a white scarf around your wrists. And then when he comes over, you go like this, you bow down to him. And then when he senses that you've made yourself smaller, because he's very humble, he makes himself smaller <laughs> than you. And then it feels very strange, because you look down, he has these very big glasses he wears, and you look down, and he's looking up at you through his eyebrows, perfect drishti, and, um, and then it feels strange, because he's smaller than you again, so then you make yourself smaller, and then he makes himself smaller. <laughs> it's very good to know sun salutations. <laughs> Next thing you know, you're so low, it's almost ridiculous. <laughs> um, and then when it becomes almost a joke, then he takes the scarf and he puts it around your neck, and then you can stand up again. Yeah. And it's a good practice because it's almost like um, uh, physically with your body, you've made yourself equal to each other. It doesn't matter if someone's taller or bigger or more important. You still make yourself small. I was reading recently about um, when baseball... Do you have baseball here? No? 
When baseball was introduced to Japan, maybe it will come to Denmark soon. When it was introduced to Japan, it was considered rude to beat your opponent. So the game changed so that as they played baseball, um, the goal was to tie the game so that it was equal. And it completely changed the strategy of baseball. And then eventually you could win, but just by one point. I always thought my yoga practice would be successful when I can watch a football game and not want any team to win. Vande <laughs> <laughs> um, means I, I bow down uh, to Guru Nam. So Guru is a very interesting word. It eventually comes over into English as the word gravity. So Guru Nam refers to basically the Laws of gravity. What does that mean? This is considered a metaphor. If you don't like metaphor, <laughs> yoga is the wrong place. Um, I bow down to the um, different laws of reality. There are some basic truths of reality. One of them, for example, as you all know who practice asana, is gravity. Have you ever tried to live your life as if there was no such thing as gravity? No. It's not possible. Um, another basic law that we are acknowledging in this practice, which is actually forms the um, real core teaching of yoga, is the fact that just like there is gravity, um, there is impermanence. That everything that you experience is impermanent, constantly in motion, constantly changing. And there are all kinds of theories that come up in yoga philosophy to deal with and to articulate this experience of impermanence. The word that's used most often um, is parinama. In the Yoga Sutra, that's the most common word, even more than dukkha. And the word literally means transformation. In Sankhya Yoga, you hear about the gunas. These are all different ways of talking about the fact that everything that you're experiencing is constantly undergoing change. Has anybody ever noticed that? Yeah. Philosophically, it's very easy to say that everything is impermanent. Every philosopher has always said that. But to actually feel in your heart that everything that you are invested in is totally impermanent. There is no way to truly hold on to your relationships, to your children, to your parents, to your body, to your bank account, to your amazing bicycle. What else do you hold on to in Copenhagen? Hunter boots. Everybody has these really nice rain boots. <laughs> yeah, the sunshine. The sunshine. It's difficult to hold on to. Try holding on to the weather. Yeah. Or even internal weather. Different <coughs> moods that were caught in the day. So everything that you can see with your eyes 
um, is impermanent. Everything that you can listen to, your favorite pieces of music even, every sound that you can hear never repeats itself in exactly the same way. Because everything that exists in every moment is conditioned. It arises on conditions. And those conditions are always changing. So you can't ever have the same experience two times. Even your downward-facing dog. How many times have you practiced downward-facing dog? Yeah. (coughs) If you think you really get it, then you've completely missed downward-facing dog. Or how many times have you practiced samastitihi? Or how many times have you felt an inhale or an exhale? No inhale or exhale is ever repeated exactly the same way. So the nose as well, when you smell something, everything that you smell is impermanent. It's constantly changing. And your skin too, everything that you can feel Everything that touches you or everything that you touch is constantly undergoing change. Our life is very provisional. It's always occurring within conditions that are always changing. And in yoga, we say that the mind and body are inseparable, partly because the sense organs also include the mind. So the mind is considered a sense organ. So in Western physiology and in philosophy and in psychology, we have this notion that we have five senses. Do you have these in Copenhagen? (laughs) You have five senses. What are the five sense organs? So what's the sense organ for touch? Skin. Skin. Eyes. Eyes. Nose, tongue, tongue, ear, ear, yeah. And, you know, in Western physiology, we've had this, or in philosophy, we've had this idea that we have these five sense organs, and then we have this thing called the mind, which nobody knows what it is. Nowadays, we think it's your brain. That the mind then takes what comes in through the sense organ and organizes it, And then you get experience. In fact, this has traditionally been the definition of psychology, is basically the organization of experience. Data comes in through the body, gets organized by this thing called mind, and then you have an experience. Actually, as an interesting footnote, this is the definition in yoga of trauma. That trauma is when you have an event that's occurred that moves through the sense organs but doesn't get organized or gets organized partially, if this makes sense. So that the event has already happened but it actually hasn't been turned into experience yet. It's happened in time, it's happened in space, it's happened in the body, but it has not been metabolized, if you will. So in yoga we have this other idea of the sense organs which is that if you can watch clouds, if you can watch birds, if you can watch other people, anything that you see is coming and going, right? Any form that the eye sees is changing. 
If you smell something, whatever you smell, the object, the sense object of the sense organ of the nose is also undergoing change. And so likewise, the mind is a sense organ. And the sense object for the mind is thought. It only takes a little bit of meditation practice to notice that thoughts also come and go. They arise and they pass away. So the mind is considered a sense organ because its its job is to sense thought, if this makes sense. Any questions? You can interrupt me at any time here. Yeah. I'll introduce myself on Sunday, by the way. <laughs> so, according to yoga, the any experience that you have, anything that moves through awareness, is a mind-body process. Because you can't experience anything independent of your sense organs, independent of the mind and the body. There's no way I can experience this floor independent of the mind and body. And what's interesting for the yoga practitioner is that the mind and body is highly conditioned. It's what we call samsara. There's many, many habits in the way we move our body, in the way we perceive, and in the way the mind operates. And so we usually don't take in experience very clearly because as the data comes in through the sense organs and the mind, um, it meets a lot of prejudice or bias or habit, which is called karma. And this changes the way we perceive. So we don't get a true perception of reality because it's all clogged up with the past. So most of the time we're not actually present in our experience because the past is operating mostly unconsciously. So the largest part of the world you can ever know is your body because there's no world independent of your body because there's no way to perceive anything independent of the body and the mind. So when we say Vande Gurunam, we're bowing down to the truths of reality, of which there are many. We've talked about impermanence primarily, because that's what we're going to focus on for the rest of our lives. (laughs) So how many feelings have you had today? How many? How many? How many sensations in your body have you had today? If you stop to notice, then then they are countless, but you don't even notice. How many thoughts have you had today? (laughs) None. No. You should be sitting here. Um, where did all of those thoughts go? I mean, are they here now, all the thoughts you've had today? No. What about all the things you've felt in your body today? 
Where are they? I mean, if you have a thought or a feeling, where do they go? You don't know? Okay. Where did they come from? The mind. The mind? Where does the mind come from? You don't know? Oh, interesting. In other words, everything that we're experiencing is impermanent. It's constantly changing. There's no way, it's not like there's some bucket where all of your thoughts end up or all of the sensations in the body. They're just coming and going. Constant phenomenon arising and passing away. At some level, the mind realizes that physical reality is impermanent and it has a nervous breakdown. Do you have nervous breakdowns in Copenhagen? (laughs) Another way of talking about a nervous breakdown is a spiritual awakening. (laughs) You see, the mind realizes that it can't control physical reality. I mean, have you ever tried to control physical reality? Yeah? How did it go? Yeah. So, because it can't control physical reality, it tries to get bigger than the physical, and it creates something called metaphysics. Metaphysics literally means bigger than the physical. And using stories, we create another reality that makes us feel secure, that makes us feel that there's permanence. We create stories about the beginning of the universe. We create stories about what is going to happen after we die. Or we create stories that nothing is going to happen after we die. We create stories that there is a God that supports the universe. Or that there is a Santa Claus that will punish you at a certain time of the year. Or bring gifts. And... We create these amazing stories that we call mythology or religion or even personality to make us feel that there is something permanent in a world that is inherently impermanent. And then we fall for the stories and then we begin to think that things actually exist in order to feel secure. And the thing that we cling to the most to feel secure is the stories we tell about ourselves. I mean, it's easy to let go of your bank account. You just move to Christiania, find a place. It's easy to let go of your bicycle. Maybe it's even easy to let go of other people. But the thing that most of us have the hardest time letting go of is the stories that we tell about ourselves. If you look into the nature of your thought process, you'll notice that most of your thoughts are actually about yourself. It's a fairly depressing phase of yoga practice. (laughs) Maybe for some people it's exciting. Freud had a name for that. (laughs) 
But for most of us, it's these stories we have about ourselves through which we filter our experience that causes us the most trouble. At the beginning of the Rig Veda, which might be one of the oldest texts we have that describes the yoga process, there is a beautiful um, line that to me has always struck me as the essence of what it's like to experience suffering. The narrator of the Rig Veda says, I do not know just who or what I am like. I wander about concealed and wrapped in thought. Let me say that again. I do not know just who or what I am like. I wander about concealed and wrapped in thought. I like the image of somebody wandering around, being existentially disoriented. This is probably the feeling that most of us are familiar with. That when you stop blaming other people for your own suffering, then you start to realize that most of your trouble comes from your own mind. We were talking earlier at lunchtime about how for most of us, our problems are not with the body. Even though we like to think that most of our trouble is in the body as Hatha Yoga practitioners, most of us get into trouble in relationship. And most of our relationships get into trouble because of the habits of our minds. And when we look into the mind, we see that this constant thought process is always getting in the way. Because as soon as we tell a story about something, we've missed it. Any questions so far? Would it be the same thing with taking pictures of the experience? Would we miss the experience too? Sometimes, okay. yeah. There are different ways of taking pictures. There's a way of taking a picture where you're trying to capture something so you can relive it again, so it won't go away. Some of you I remember, you know, when our son was being born. And um, I remember realizing, oh, I don't have a camera. Mm -hmm. And that's probably a good thing. Some people go in during birth with like three video cameras and, you know, a podcast or whatever. Um, and I'm sure many of you have seen tourists I'm sure none of you have done this, but you know, going around taking pictures, and then as soon as you click the picture, they're away and on to the next thing. And then you miss the experience, because you're trying to somehow grab hold of it. And most of us don't even look at the pictures again. Or we can do the same thing, you know, with journaling. Do any of you write in a journal? How many of you have kept your journal since you were a young person, and then you go back through them again. 
And then as you go back through them, it's like you're constructing this whole version of yourself. And you forget that your history is fiction. It's not real. And that you're constantly shifting, hopefully, the way you're telling the story about your history. In a way, you could say that addiction is being locked into a particular version of a story about yourself. I mean, at the end of the day, any addiction at bottom is an addiction to a story, to a certain way that you're perceiving yourself over and over again. And the more you think about yourself in particular ways, the more you start to think that that's who you are. This is Patanjali's secret in the Yoga Sutra, is that the more you follow a particular groove, the deeper and deeper that groove gets. And you can see that very easily in the body when you're practicing asana. If you've been sitting on a chair your whole life, then you know your hip joint won't open and it won't close. It's stuck in medium somewhere. And it takes many years of practice to start to change that groove. Well, the same is true with the mind. That for most of us, the way the mind operates, unless you're quite special, is that in every moment, in every mind state, you are um, perceiving in particular ways. If you perceive something, for example, through the state of anger, or through a state of jealousy, or envy, or greed, then those are the same states of mind you're planting for future moments. In other words, how many of you garden? Does anybody here garden? Yeah. If you plant a cucumber seed, then you're going to get a cucumber. You're not going to get a pumpkin or a watermelon. If you plant squash, you're going to get squash. And likewise, in the mind and the body, if you're planting seeds of tenderness and compassion and generosity, then that's what you're going to get in future experiences. And if you plant the seeds of hatred and greed and envy and anger and inflexibility and fear and intolerance, then those are the kind of conditions you're setting up in future experiences. It's quite simple. This is called karma. We'll get to more of that. So we try as hard as we can in this state of impermanence to make stories about ourselves and the world around us so that we can feel some kind of security. Even the way we tell stories about other people. Like, for example, if you think about someone in your life right now who you don't get along with very well, just let just conjure, it's probably fast. (laughs) Right away, I bet you have a story about them that is pretty fixed one version of them. 
And that in yoga would be considered inflexibility. The key to yoga practice is flexibility. Not just flexibility in your hamstrings and in your shoulder joint, but flexibility in your own heart so that you can start to take in perspectives other than your own perspective. Otherwise, your yoga practice actually creates inflexibility. You see this in yoga circles sometimes where people start yoga practice and then they you know, pick a favorite, stu- a favorite teacher and a favorite studio and then a favorite kind of yoga mat and then they start buying special clothes to wear for their yoga practice. I'm sure none of you do this. <laughs> and then um, they really get into one particular school and they think that's the only school of yoga. And then they start, then they become vegetarian. And then you can only eat out a little bit. And then they become vegan. And then you can't travel anymore anywhere in the world. Because people will, I mean, it's considered rude to say no to food in many parts of the world. And then you have to say, no, you can't eat it because of your philosophy. And then people start flying planes into other yoga studios who don't agree (laughs) with exactly the same philosophy as them. And your world actually gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. But you're a yoga practitioner. But actually, you've created more and more dukkha. Because rather than opening up to reality, you're superimposing your philosophy onto everything around you. Because the truth is not found in philosophy. The truth is found in every moment. And every moment is constantly changing. So no system can ever capture the nature of reality. You can't ever have a corner on it, even if you think you have the best system. Sorry. Don't tell the Tabby Joyce that I said any of this. But it's, it's like a paradox, isn't it? Because you have to have a discipline which you stay with, to not get stuck in your habits but then you don't get stuck in the discipline. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's difficult. Yeah. Patanjali says, abhyasa vairagyabhyam, which means practicing non-attachment. And then you practice non-attachment to your practice. And then you practice non-attachment to your practice of (laughs) non-attachment. And then you practice non-attachment to your practice of non-attachment to your practice. And it just keeps going. Because the mind is so creative. And this is one of the reasons why you need to practice with a teacher and why you need to practice in community. Because you will always get to stages of your practice where the ego will come in and then tell a story to yourself about the practice. Patanjali says in every single chapter of the Yoga Sutra, at the end of the chapter, he always says, and clinging to stories about self seems perpetual even for the wise. Because the mind always comes in 
and then puts the experience in a context. In other words, you practice sitting meditation and you sit and you sit. How many of you have a sitting meditation practice? Oh, interesting. How many of you have been on a meditation retreat? Usually when you sit after about nine or ten days, your mind finally gets a little bit quiet. And then the mind comes in then and says, oh, this is really good. <laughs> it's, I'm so still. I'm so spiritual. And then you start measuring all of your next three years of meditation against that particular experience. Or you finally practice a great backbend where the spine releases completely. And then the mind clings to that experience and says, oh, I am, or I have just accomplished. And so there's all these ways where we can fall into what Shogyam Trumpa calls spiritual materialism. Where instead of letting the practice undo the habits of storytelling, we superimpose our lifestyle on our practice so that it doesn't have to change us very much. Because for all of us, asana practice is such a lovely beginning to spiritual practice. Because by tuning in to the body in the present moment, we have access to present experience and we bypass all any kind of theological commitment, right? You have direct access to present experience and the joy that comes in the letting go of habit. And you don't have to adopt any new kind of belief system to do that. You're not asked, you don't have to believe in God. You don't have to believe in a big bang. You don't have to believe in a future life. You just tune yourself into what's happening in present experience. And it's free of dogma. But then the mind comes in and superimposes on what happens a whole new kind of dogma. And that's the paradox. Because the mind in yoga is called nama rupa. Nama means name and rupa means form. And the function of the mind is to put everything into name and form. So the mind is always taking your experience and putting it into a context so that you can go, ah, permanence. This is what this is. Or that's who you are. It's like when you meet somebody who's new and quickly the mind tries to find a category for them. Does this happen around here? Yeah. And if they don't fit into a category, then it can be threatening. But hopefully, your yoga practice is designed so that it will interrupt this tendency in the mind to put everything into a context, everything into a category, so that there can be a kind of genuine flexibility. Otherwise, you're just seeing everything that you know already.
this is a phase of psychotherapy for a lot of people. A lot of people, they come in for psychotherapy, and on the first two or three days, they basically honestly talk about whatever it is that's happening. And then for the next two or three years, they talk about everything they know already. And we do that because the mind always wants to associate to what is known, to what is comfortable. It's like people who have, or actually it's like you, all of you, who are addicted to something. Whatever you're addicted to, okay? Whatever you're addicted to, it's interesting because our addictions are very comfortable, even if they're uncomfortable. And that's why we don't want to give them up. We don't want to give up our addictions because they're known. And no matter how much... Um, no matter how much trouble they cause internally to ourselves and externally in our community, we don't want to let them go because that would be admitting impermanence. And at some level, the mind freaks out because to give up an addiction is to enter into not knowing. And it would actually make you feel something for once. Because actually, most people who are caught in addiction don't feel anything. There's a kind of numbness. Because storytelling keeps us out of feeling. You don't even have to write it down. Yeah. <laughs> How do you practice non-attachment to your practice? have a baby <laughs> um, you practice non-attachment to your practice by remembering that practice is designed to point you towards something it's designed to orient you towards the present moment and sometimes we get caught up in thinking that the technique is actually what the technique is pointing at. So, for example, um, we get caught up thinking that the technique in the asana practice is yoga. And then we get addicted to the technique and we come to yoga workshops like this. Some people are addicted to yoga workshops. Yeah. In Boulder, Colorado, they have this term called workshop slut, <laughs> which is just someone who every weekend is at a yoga workshop. This isn't being recorded. Um, and to remember that all of these techniques are pointing at yoga. Yoga, the word yoga, comes from the root yuj, which is a verb, which means to unite, or to yoke, or to bring something, to, to uh, bring together um, pairs of opposites. And a lot of people translate yoga still in its verb form, that yoga is to unite 
the mind and the body or the breath with God or whatever your vocabulary is. But that's a misunderstanding of yoga. You can't practice yoga because yoga is not a verb. Yoga means union. It means that everything is already united. Everything is already interconnected. Everything already interpermeates everything else. It's the realization of enlightenment. And I like to, instead of using the word enlightenment, understand that enlightenment actually means intimacy. Enlightenment is the realization that everything is interconnected. So it's inseparable from intimacy. And our greatest fear is intimacy. Otherwise, we wouldn't put everything into a story and create categories that separate, that create separation. So, when you finally find stillness in the mind, and it's not so, and this is what we're going to work on this week, and it's not so caught up in patterns of attachment, raga, and patterns of aversion, dvesha, and stories about ourselves, asmita, then we actually experience direct contact with how things are. And that's yoga. Yeah. And no system has a corner on that. So we always have to see that our technique is just technique. And be reminded about what this project is all about. The project of yoga is to find freedom from dukkha, freedom from suffering. That's the whole project. If you come to yoga because you want a new metaphysical belief system, or if you want, you know, great abdominals, you're in the wrong place. I mean, you can get great abdominals, but your body is impermanent. So when you're dying, I don't know how great abdominals are going to be beneficial. But if you go deep into this practice and you start to work with the mind and see that actually to work deeply in the body is psychological, then you can start to work with habits of mind and body until you realize that there is no such thing even as death. From this perspective, we say death is coming. And we have all kinds of ideas about death. Someone asked the Dalai Lama while I was with him. Um, he was giving a teaching about death. And he said, do you, do you think about death a lot? He says, no, I don't waste my time with that. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> um, what he meant as a joke is that um, if you're always present... If you're present with whatever state of mind you're in, if you're present even when there's uncomfortable sensation in the body, then when you're there at the moment of death, 
There is no moment of death. There's just what's actually happening. And you're there in that experience. So that you can hopefully leave this world or this body or this lifetime with peace and beneficial feelings toward all beings. Without holding on to your stories about yourself. Because otherwise you'll be able to practice amazing backbends and handstands and arm balancing poses. But you won't be getting along with the people in your community. Mm. Or maybe you'll have nine babysitters so that you can do your practice. And then everyone's stressed out around you. As opposed to seeing that practice is everything. And a lot of people like to walk around saying, you know, these yoga lines, like everything is practice. It's so easy to talk about. So the source of dukkha, the source of suffering, comes from confusing what's impermanent as permanent. If everything that you think is impermanent, then how can you hold on to it? If all of your relationships are impermanent, then what are you holding on to? How can you hold on to anything? It's all impermanent. There are two Western thinkers who came to the same conclusion, Nietzsche and Kierkegaard. I spent the morning, what, what was the place called? The Black Diamond. The, the Black Diamond. You can't walk around the Black Diamond without finding Kierkegaard. And um, Kierkegaard had this lovely idea that because there is so much fear that life has an expiry date, um, we find ourselves experiencing a kind of existential anxiety that drives us in our life that we do everything we can to repress. For Kierkegaard, for Heidegger, for Nietzsche, the thing that we most repress is the fear of death. It's the thing we try and keep away. I mean, when you walk around in Copenhagen, you don't see people throwing dead bodies into the river or the harbor. I bet you don't even see dead bodies very much unless they're dressed up really nicely, wearing makeup. Yeah. We don't see death very much. You see Oh, yes, that's safe. But do you smell it? What does a dead body smell like after two weeks? What does it taste like? What's it like to be around death? We keep it hidden. Mm -hmm. It's interesting even in the um, medical profession. Usually the people who are most underpaid are people who work with people who are dying. 
Or the other end of life, people who take care of kids. It's what we value the least because there's the least productivity and consumerism happening in those segments of life. It's hard to go shopping when you're on your deathbed (laughs) or when you're an infant. I was in Greece this year and um, it was very interesting to learn about this profession uh, called uh, doula, being a doula. Have you heard of this word, doula? In Canada we have doulas, which are like midwives, who help women give birth. Uh, you know, they'll come to your house and help you give birth. Uh, they'll go into hospitals and so on. Um, but I learned very interesting this year in Greece that traditionally a doula was trained to help women give birth and also to be with people when they were dying because it was considered exactly the same set of skills. It's very interesting, which is how to help women tune into what's happening in the present moment. Whether they're giving birth, not trying to escape the sensations that are happening, or whether they're dying, not trying to escape the experience and to be present for what's happening. But for Nietzsche and for Kierkegaard, the response to impermanence tended to move towards nihilism, especially for Nietzsche, that if everything is impermanent, then who cares? Or if everything is impermanent, how does that help me do what I'm supposed to do? Or what am I supposed to do? if everything is constantly changing. Because there's a piece missing. In yoga, impermanence only makes sense when we understand karma. That in every moment, you're taking action. And actions always have an effect. So if you take the action of passivity, that actually has an effect. If you take the perspective of nihilism, that's being inflexible. It's being stuck in a perspective which then actually has an effect. Is this making sense? In other words, what you do is important. And how you do what you do is the, the thrust of yoga. How does the truth of impermanence affect what you do? How does it affect what you're going to do with the rest of your day? Maybe some of you will walk out now. I'm not going to waste my time here. I've got something to do. Except that you're suffering. If you weren't suffering, you wouldn't be here. I mean, if you were completely content, you wouldn't be at this workshop. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about what we mean by suffering. But first, are there any other questions or comments? 
What did I say? If you were completely content, why would you be here? If you were completely tent, would you be curious about much? It's hard to say. Nobody here is completely content, so you can't answer the question. Patanjali says, when there is santosha, contentment, when there is santosha, there is little left to know. There is little left to know. I would say that one of the things most of us are addicted to is knowledge. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. But it's a really good question. Yeah. Which is why I'm not answering it. Um, dukkha. Have you heard this word dukkha? Let's say it together. Dukkha. Dukkha. You're going to hear about it a lot this weekend. Most people translate dukkha as suffering. Recently, or for the past little while, I've been translating dukkha as being unsatisfied, unsatisfaction, feeling the sense of always feeling that we're not satisfied, the opposite of contentment, the opposite of santosha. But I've changed the translation. Now I like to translate dukkha as lack, a feeling of lack, that there's something missing. Most people, when they start to get quiet and they tune into themselves, usually find a sense of lack, feeling that there is something I lack, there is something I need, there is something that I need to fulfill or that there's something that needs to be fulfilling for me to feel complete. Has anybody felt this before? What does it feel like? How does lack happen for you? What does lack mean? What, what would be the word lack? Where to translate it? So everyone understands what we... So... Can you describe, how do you know that there's lack? What happens when you come in contact with this feeling? Resistance, empty. You feel empty. Restlessness. Restless. So maybe first you feel empty, and then you feel a drive. And then what do you do? Act. What's that? Act. Do something. What do you do? It depends on the back. What did you do today? Um, well, today the lack was definitely to be at peace, so I went here. Oh. What else? What do other people do when they feel this empty? Eat. Eat? <laughs> yeah. What do you eat? Chocolate. Chocolate. Mm. What else? 
tell me what. Go outside and walk. Go outside and walk. Yeah. And does that work itself out? What else do you? I think a lot of times I find myself reading books about Buddhism or yoga because then it gives some sort of uh, contentment. Ah, this this is the way. Yeah. Like filling myself with this and then. Is the contentment permanent? No. <laughs> because then probably one book would be enough. Yeah. yeah. You'd read one book and you'd put it down yeah. and you'd be done. Yeah. What else do you do? Write. Write? Yeah. What do you write about? Uh, right now I was just thinking someone said walk and all this. Yeah. And I'm thinking what do I do in, in more general terms? So yeah. I write. And what would you write about when you feel? Just my considerations, thoughts, you know, yeah. work it through. And do you work it through? Yeah, I think so. So you've given up because writing? Because it changes. No, I haven't given up writing. Oh, so it didn't get worked through fully. Yeah. Oh, there's always something. <laughs> ah. Um... If it's okay, I'm going to give my own little spin on Dukkha. Because, you know, Patanjali was writing in an Iron Age. This was over 2,000 years ago. Um, He didn't know about the printing press. You couldn't go buy a book. Actually, if if this was 2,000 years ago, women would not be here. You'd all be illiterate, and I'd be a Brahmin. I've tried being a Brahmin for a while. It doesn't work. <laughs> um, he didn't know about the molecular basis of disease. He didn't know about the internet. He didn't know about satellite, GPS, or telephone systems. He didn't know about sailing. He wouldn't have known about um, reproductive technology. He wouldn't have known about the ethics of bioengineering. He wouldn't know about the fact that there is an organic movement. He wouldn't have known about pesticides. He wouldn't have known about cancer. So actually, we're living in quite a different time. And I think it's important to also understand that dukkha might also show up in different ways than it showed up in the culture that he was living in. And I think there's really three different ways that we deal with lack that are unique to our culture at this time that we didn't find 2,500 years ago, for example. For most of us, when we feel lack, one of the ways that's unique in our culture that we try and deal with dukkha or deal with lack is through um, romantic love. That if I feel something in me is missing, I am going to find a lover who will then satisfy that lack. Have any of you ever tried this? How's it going? (laughs) It works for a while. It does work for a while. (laughs) And then what happens? (laughs) Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Um, one of the really interesting theories um, that Freud offers us is his idea that whatever you repress, um, the amount of energy you use to push something outside of awareness is the same amount of energy that it uses to come back into awareness. He calls this return of the repressed. Have you read Freud? A little bit. Should be on your yoga reading list. Um, this idea that when you push something outside of awareness, um, it takes a lot of energy to hold it outside of awareness. And then whatever you push away comes back into awareness in the form of a symptom. And so the symptom is a symbol for what's been pushed out of awareness, which is a fascinating thing about symptoms. Right? So one of the things we push out of awareness is dukkha, is lack. And so the lack comes back as a symptom that then gets projected outside of us onto a lover. And so that lover is going to complete my life because they are going to hold the lack for me. And of course, we forget that they also have done the same thing. So it's like when two people meet, everything is perfect, isn't it? Right? You have a date, and it goes very well, and so you have three or four dates and then a week later you move in together and then um, you're living together and all of your friends say, whoa, it's so fast, you know. Um, but it's perfect because you have fallen for your ideas about them and they fit perfectly because you haven't met them yet, right? They f every image fits perfectly. And then they have fallen for you. So it's like two images are relating to each other. Does this make sense? Yeah. But when the honeymoon ends, that's actually when relationship starts. Because a person actually has shown up. And then you get dukkha. And then there's suffering. There's suffering because there is a gap between how things actually are in the present moment and how you want them to be. This happens in asana practice all the time, right? There's how you want your body to be, so it looks like the person in the yoga journal or whatever, and then there's what's actually happening in the present moment. Or there's how your teacher says the pose should be and how Mr. Iyengar says the pose should be and how Batabi Joy says the pose should be and that Bodil and Peter can't agree on how the pose should be. And so your mind is all filled up with yoga gossip. You know? And then there's a gap between what's actually happening in present experience and all of your theory. There's a story I like to tell some of you have probably heard it. Um, 
about my first time in Boulder, Colorado, studying with Richard Freeman. I went there to study with him, um, and I had saved up all of my money, because it's expensive to go to Boulder. And um, I went there for 10 days, and so every day I would wake up early and go to the Mysore class. And um, I would do my practice, and Richard would say hi. And then he never came over first day and offered any kind of adjustment or anything. And then the second day, same thing. Then the third day, same thing. Fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, seventh. So by the seventh or eighth day, I was getting pretty upset because I had spent all this money to go. (laughs) And I was practicing in my sword. He was the only person teaching. And he never came and gave me an adjustment. Then finally, on the last day, he came over to me and he kneeled down beside me and he said something extremely subtle about how I was breathing. And I didn't even hear what he said because I was so upset. (laughs) So it was like I heard it and it just went out the other side. And um, when I went back to Toronto and started practicing again, what he said became so profound to me because he said something about my breathing that was so subtle that the only way he could have noticed that was if he was wa- as if was that he was watching me very very closely okay. so instead of being cavalier and coming in and you know like most of us tend to do you know changing the posture he was watching for something much more simple and subtle that is sometimes harder to see. A few years later, I confronted him and I said, you know, Richard, the first time I came to Boulder, you know, you, you basically didn't give me any adjustments. And I was so upset. And he said, oh, well, if I came in and gave you an adjustment, then you would have in your mind an idea of how the pose was supposed to be, and that would be distracting. Isn't that kind of interesting? Um, So sometimes we get caught up in our expectations of how things are supposed to be, rather than really tending to what's actually happening in the present moment. And likewise, in relationship, we do this all the time to our lovers and our parents and our children and our cats, (coughs) is we want them to fit into how things are supposed to be. But the problem is, people and life in general (coughs) never really match up. They can't match up. They're always going to destroy um, and pull apart our ideas of how things are supposed to be. Thankfully, that's why to really practice yoga, we start with the first yama, which (coughs) is all about relationship. Because if you go practice um, without tending to relationship, there is nothing that's going to interrupt most of your perceptual habits. Because what interrupts the habits in the mind, first and foremost, is other people. 
And although sometimes we think other people are the source of our suffering, it's our viewpoint that is the source of other of our suffering, not other people. So one of the ways we try and fill our lack is through romantic love and relationship. <coughs> Another way that's unique in our culture that we try and fill lack is through capitalism. That if I get enough capital, I'll be satisfied. Yeah. Is this working for anybody? <coughs> A little bit? This idea that if I just have enough money, then I'll be secure. But we all know that once you, ha- once you have your eighth house, then you need a ninth house, you know, or you renovate your kitchen 20 times, or, you know, there's always this other thing I'm going to get. But, you know, at the bottom of financial accumulation is the fact that I need security. I need a retirement fund. And it doesn't actually work. And it's also unethical. It's not really understanding samadhi, that everything is integrated. Some to come together, adi as one. If everything is integrated, and there is only so much money, if you take all of that money for me, that's less for everybody else. It's not that complicated. If you take all the oil for your big truck, that's less oil for, well, wherever it's supposed to belong. <laughs> so, when you start to see how things are integrated, it affects every aspect of your life, including the things we don't like to talk about. And usually the things we don't like to talk about are where most of the attention needs to be. And in our culture, one of them is money. Like we say, for example, that in the West, there's a poverty problem in relationship to the global economy. But there is not a poverty problem. There's a wealth problem. But we don't like to use that language because it would affect how we think about um, our economy. And I'd say the third way that we deal with lack is through the desire for fame and notoriety. It's something very unique at this time that people want to become famous. Maybe less in Denmark, but in some other countries, I won't name names, um, everybody is trying to become famous, even in the yoga community. There are like yoga celebrities now. You know, it's almost offensive. I've met many of them. And there's a real desire to be a rock star. You know, because when you want to be famous, you want to be seen so that when you see me, then I'll be satisfied because I'm seen. 
Except the problem is the more you know, as you become famous, then you need something else <coughs> like cocaine or whatever, because the fame doesn't fill the lack; it actually increases it, because there's an identification with the story of me, and so it conversely increases the dukkha, discontent. Sorry if that's a project some of you are working on. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if any of you are famous or know people who are famous, but it's hard to be happy because there's a certain amount of energy that has to go in to believing the story, which is exactly what yoga is working against this identification with me, with this story of me. Goodbye. (laughs) Should we call it a workshop? Any questions or thoughts? curious about this suffering thing. It's not the first time I hear it, and, but I I can't actually really relate to it. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's not like I'm walking around on a pink sky and everything's perfect all the time. Mm-hmm. I experience a lot of, you know, unpleasant feelings, not all the time, but, you know, I can get angry or mm-hmm. feel fear or whatever. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's like it's part of the experience of life and it doesn't have to mean that I'm suffering in my life mm-hmm. and even feeling glad or happy or in love or whatever it's, mm-hmm. it's also part of the experience of life hmm. so you're satisfied uh, well, no. Uh, <laughs> yes, but still, I want new experiences. So yeah. maybe that's my dukkha then, that I want to experience life. Or but you are life. So who wants to experience it? I mean, it's an interesting sentence. I want to experience life. So who yes, who I, wants to experience life? I want to experience this life. Who does? Well, you know, my ego. Whose ego? <laughs> okay. I mean, is your <laughs> ego your ego? <laughs> Sorry? So you're describing yourself as if there's two of you. There's you, and then there's the ego. And the ego is yours. Yes, well, I guess. I mean, it's like there is parts, I mean, kind of different parts of the, uh, of me, yes. Different parts of you. Are those parts you? Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. You see, according to yoga, 
Whenever we have an identification with our experience, there is unsatisfaction. If you don't feel that there is unsatisfaction or suffering or lack, then there's nothing to practice. There's no practice to do. Because the practice is using wherever there is suffering as the material for your practice, if this makes sense. Like, we're using the places in our life where there is discontent or discord in order to practice. That's the fuel for your practice. If your practice is not working with some of the areas in your life where you're having trouble, then it's not yet considered a spiritual path. It's idealistic. It's saying, this is the path and this is my practice. And if you do that, that, and you make the practice too narrow, then you don't take into account the places in your life where there is lack. And a lot of us can mask suffering because we live in a material culture. And so you can make your suffering go away by buying a new car and by getting stainless steel appliances and new silk underwear and cashmere and yoga classes to make the suffering kind of go away for a while. But it doesn't. And that's why the people who tend to start to get the practice easily are people who are actually on their knees. People who are having a bit of a hard time. Because then you really see how the practice works and how it's helpful. So I encourage you to look in your life and see where there's imbalance and start to understand, because we're going to explore what the eight limbs actually are. How the eight limbs are not just asana. Asana, 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 asana. Um, The eight limbs are designed to touch every aspect of your life so that you can see in those different aspects of your life where there is discontent. And you'll find that there is a relationship between suffering and clinging. And that wherever there is suffering in your life, there's a certain amount of attachment or clinging there. Yes? I'm just thinking that well, maybe you can't feel the suffering, mean, you can't relate to the thing of suffering, but if you think of it as a, as a you know, more, if we're all interconnected, then if you look on a global level, there is suffering. Mm-hmm. If you look at how the environment is getting, you know, it's under pressure and there are people in third world countries and war and famine and so, I mean, and that's what we should look at it as well, if we're all interconnected and we are. And you know, my view anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, if we don't feel that it's suffering for us, then the way that we live creates suffering. 
Yeah, I mean, I always think, you know, one of the best cures for most people's neurosis is seeing other people suffering more than you. Um, And usually that's a good impetus for practice. We're going to talk more about that. What I was thinking when you said that, it's it's not actually the experiences that causes the suffering, it's the resistance to the experience. So if you don't resist your experience, then maybe that's one. Because when you talked about it, it sounded like you just experienced whatever it was with no resistance, and then there was no suffering. Right, yeah, that's true. And uh, of course, there is resistance sometimes. <laughs> so and then, of course, it's suffering. Yeah. But it sounds like it should be like permanent somehow. What should be permanent? The suffering. That, that it's like always there. Some unsatisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that if you look closely, there's a certain level of discontent that is there most of the time for most people. You don't have to agree with me. Um, And I would say that the more sensitive you become to um, our interconnectedness, the more you start to see suffering you don't have to look very far. Just look at your family. You turn on the news, and instead of eating your dinner and being numb, you have a good look at what's happening. And this is where yoga practice really gets going. This is the first limb of yoga. Is that you look in the world and you see fear, you see anger, you see right now a tremendous amount of intolerance. It's unbelievable how intolerant cultures are right now. And you realize that you don't want to put any more fear into the culture. You don't want to put fear into your kids. You don't want to put fear into the culture. You don't want to put any more anger into your family. You don't want to put any more jealousy or envy or greed into the world. And then you realize that you have the potential for all of those things. And then you realize that there's a lot of practice to do because your mind and body are a filter for the culture. And if you don't put those energies that you don't like into the culture, suddenly your yoga practice is a form of social action. Suddenly you're an activist even though before you thought spiritual practice was away from the world, you realize that you are the world. There's a story about a man during the Vietnam War who stood outside of the White House. I'm sure you know what the White House is. (laughs) I think you have a government that really likes the White House. He stood outside the White House during the Vietnam War with a candle through the whole war. And after a couple of years, a reporter came up to him and said, 
you've been standing out here for a few years now with the candle and the rain and the snow and so on. How is this going to change your culture? And he said, I don't want to change my culture. I just don't want my culture to change me. And so as we wake up, we start to see that we have all kinds of cultural conditioning that also needs attention. And that's also material for our practice. Yes? in touch with your suffering because you talk about practicing all the time but, but if you're like stuck in that and know it's not good but, but you just need something to to um, loosen it up so you can work with it yeah, so you can, if you work about it. how to loosen up no no but, but just if you're really there or you just know you don't want to be but, but it takes your energy and then um, you know when well, I think you're talking about the symptoms of suffering, yeah. like addiction. Yeah, but I don't know addiction, but just, yeah, I was just saying, but if you really are there when you feel the suffering, yeah. do you have to practice? Yeah, to go into it, to feel it so fully that you see a homeless person and you look them in the eye and you smell them and you don't shut your sense organs off and you realize that that is also you and you treat them exactly as you would treat yourself because there's no separation and you um, contemplate your enemies and the people you don't get along with the people who you don't get along with in your life do you have any enemies? <laughs> and um, you go into the prisons. For you to be here right now, we have to put people in prison. And so you're responsible for that. Um, for you to drive your car, you have to send soldiers to various countries. Um, you're responsible for that. And then those soldiers are going to come home back to your communities and you have to take care of them. Because it doesn't matter what your politics are. Those are people in your community. And your community is not just humans. So you look at the state of our water. I mean, you're made of water. So you're only as healthy as your water supply. And then you do something about it. You take action, karma. But when we're numb and we're cut off, we don't know what actions to take because we live in a virtual world caught up in <coughs> concepts and ideas and habits. You see, the thing is, the more that we're attached to ideas about ourselves, the less we can take in anything else. So by definition psychological transformation and spirituality are exactly the same thing. Because as we start to work with our habits of mind and body, we can then be touched and take in 
a world greater than our stories about ourselves. And by definition, that's spiritual life. It's having a connection to something greater than our stories about ourselves. I hope that touches on some of the things you were saying. We're going to talk a lot more about it. This is just the beginning. Or maybe the end. (laughs) It's hard to say. You never know what will happen.